Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by H. Coakley. H is a queer, non-binary registered nutritionist dietitian who works with individuals with eating disorders and disordered eating. H works with folks from a range of identities and experiences, including queer, trans and gender non-conforming individuals. H joins us today to discuss their work and the nuanced experiences of queer, trans and non-gender conforming folks that may lead to eating disorders. Hello H. Hello, hi Hannah. Hello, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm happy to be to be chatting with you. And I love the yeah. name of the podcast. I feel like <laughs> it makes me really oh, happy. Oh. <laughs> yeah, hopefully the bright colors and everything else bring everybody lots of joy, um, as well as the name. But yeah, I'm really excited to speak to you um, because of the podcast that we did quite a while back now with Sam and Sid from Fed Up Collective. It, I have very high hopes for you um, because that podcast was a real insight into different experiences that people have. I wondered if you wanted to start by talking about your personal experience and how that shaped the work that you do today. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when I think about my personal experience, I think about a couple of different things. Um, so I myself am in recovery from what looking back was definitely riding the line between an eating disorder and disordered eating. So that's Mm -hmm. been a big part of my own personal experience that, um, you know, I, I wasn't really aware of until, um, I started to develop more of an interest in nutrition in undergraduate. Um, I have a family history of eating disorders as well on both sides. Um, And that was a big part of how, particularly on my father's side, we, uh, we spoke about eating disorders was that awareness because, um, his sister had a very, a very serious eating disorder that had actually led to her death. Um, so it was a huge, actually like my awareness of eating disorders was, but it was very specific and very contained. Um, And, and this was in, my parents were older. So this was in like the seventies that this had happened before there was really like pre any kind of mainstream awareness of, of eating disorders, um, the sixties and seventies. So that was a huge part of my life. Just like knowing about her, I never met her. Um, and sort of definitely struggled with, with disordered eating, but not to the extent of what I had thought was, oh, well, eating disorder means like you're in a psychiatric institution, very like severe. Um, and that's also how they, how they treated people back then was like this really old school carceral method. Um, and then I went to school for, for urban, urban studies, um, and got interested in nutrition from like a population perspective. So like public health style, um, and I went and got my master's in public health nutrition and then in America went to get my registered dietitian. Um, I applied to get matched and I got matched. And so I did my year long clinical um, so that I could qualify to be a registered dietitian. 
And I started by working in like food justice and food access. Um, And then I kind of had a huge reckoning um, around just my own mental health and like meaning (laughs) and why I was doing what I was doing and really thinking hard about like a lot of the different structures that I was being exposed to. And I said, like, I don't, I need to reevaluate. And I had been interested in meditation and, and I had applied for a three month program at a meditation center and a Zen Buddhist meditation center in New Mexico in the U S and I was accepted and so I just quit my job and I moved there <laughs> and then I stayed there for like a year and a half. <laughs> um, so it totally changed my whole life. That experience totally changed my whole life. Um, and while I was there, I was actually out of nowhere, sent a message. It was towards the end of my time. And I had been just kind of thinking about like, what will happen after I leave Upaya? And I was, um, recruited basically off of like, do you know, indeed, like the resume site? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I was like, recruited <clears throat> by this person who ran a treatment center, a small family run treatment center in Memphis, Tennessee, where I had done my uh, clinical rotation. So I was like, how interesting that this is not something I ever expected I would be a part of, mm-hmm. but like, here's someone like literally showing up and like, per, you know, proverbially, proverbially knocking on my door. And with everything that I had been thinking about in the Zen Center, uh, I was like, I think this is what, I don't know why, but I think this is what I need to do. And so I went there and I worked there for a year. Um, and unfortunately was quite understaffed on the nutrition side. So I, um, to put it nicely, I got a lot of experience. (laughs) Because I was the only dietitian. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> yeah, I had a little bit of help from I don't know if you know uh, Whitney Trotter. She's pretty known in the like mm-hmm. eating disorder space. She's a dietitian, so she um, she would come and help. She had another full time job, and they had her come for like six hours a week to just help out. But for a long time, it was like just me, um, or like somebody would come in and then leave. So it was a whole thing. We could probably get into treatment centers in general, but I got tremendous experience, tremendous exposure. And for that, I'm really grateful. It was trauma focused. So I got a lot of trauma focused uh, training. And then I burned out and I left and I went to work on a farm for two years. Um, And then I was planning to actually move out of the country and in March of 2020. And that obviously the program I had applied to, and it was not nutrition related. It was completely different nothing doing. And I decided I really, I miss working with my clients. I had had like two while I was farming because farming doesn't leave a lot of time for anything other than farming. (laughs) Um, And I decided I'm going to try to start my practice. So I'm going to try to do things in a way that feels more sustainable because I really loved that work. It just, I just couldn't do it sustainably uh, in that setting. And, and so that's what I've been working on for the past whatever, about a little over two years is when I like actually really tried to do it. And then, uh, I had a part-time, just like standard virtual nutrition job for bills. And then May of this year, I went to the wow. business full-time. So I just do the business now. So Amazing. Well, congratulations. <laughs> it sounds, <laughs> yeah, that was quite a journey to get there, but I don't want to say that cliche thing of like everything happens for a reason. And sometimes you have to go through stuff 
um, to realise, you know, your purpose and stuff. But but sometimes that is what happens and we learn so much from our own experience and then want to give back, which is totally fair. I mentioned this a little bit in your introduction, but I saw on your website that you say that you work in a trauma-informed, body-accepting uh, and intersectional framework, and that's a lot of words. Uh, so I wondered if you could explain for the listeners what, what that means to you. Yeah, so I mean, I think, where where can we go with that? So trauma-informed basically means that, you know, my my training is, through the lens of seeing how trauma, and that's trauma is a, a wide range, right? Um, how trauma affects our bodies and our minds, our spirit, our emotions. Um, and that oftentimes, oftentimes, almost all the time, but I never give anything a hundred, I never say a hundred percent for anything. So most of the time or a lot of the time, um, eating disorders can develop out, out of or as a survival response to trauma. Um, because they work on so many different levels, right? So they work on like emotional distancing or like a, an ability to kind of manage your emotions in a more um, sustainable way. Um, they also work from a physiological perspective. So there's a lot going on in and with your body that is, feels really overwhelming because em emotions are also physical. Um, they help modulate that. So they work, um, they work effectively. <laughs> um, and so I think that sometimes helps us like root and ground why they're so challenging to shift. Um, and I think it gives, it enables myself like as a practitioner, but also the people I work with to start to invite in like curiosity and compassion to being like, oh, well, there's probably a reason why this happened. And then at a certain point it, it turns and it's like, wow, this is really really messing up my life. <laughs> um, but I think without that trauma-informed framework, you're just really looking at behavior and you're just trying to like, just sort of like change, hit behavior, right? And you get all these like words like non-compliance, like stuff that's like really, you know, kind of trying to grind someone into changing. And I don't think that's, to me, that's not what I have seen. Again, never 100%, but I have not seen that to be particularly successful. Um, yeah. And so I think, um, so then I think like intersectional, right. You know, that's a, that's a principle that comes out of, um, black feminist thought. Um, and so intersectionality is just the idea that whatever kind of various, you know, for lack of a better word, marginalized identities you're coming in with to any sort of interaction that, that affects how you move through the world. So, you know, we live in a fat phobic culture, for example. And so I think you have to honor and respect the fact that there is bias and stigma for folks who are in larger bodies or fat. And again, to, if you're not bringing that in when you're doing the work, that's, it's hard. It's really challenging to navigate a fat phobic culture and do recovery. Right. And that's for everybody. But again, we're trying to look specifically. Right. Or when we talk about um, how stress and trauma exists differently for BIPOC communities. Right. Or how relationship to the body is different in trans and gender nonconforming communities. Um, so if we don't kind of locate the person in the context of the society and you're missing a huge part. And again, you lose out on awareness. Um, 
and then, yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the body piece is just from a perspective that I don't work in weights. I don't, you know, we're, I'm not doing that type of, um, uh, like we're doing eating disorders, but then like, we're also somehow doing weight loss. Like I'm not doing that. Um, so the idea being that I, I want folks to feel as much as they can, like at home with their body as much as they can, as much as they can. And to also be able to maybe find ways that they can increase those feelings or to be able to sit with the times where that feels really hard and like navigate that. I really liked what you were saying there at the start about not focusing on the behaviours because I think so often in treatment we get really entrenched into behaviours and like oh if I fix somebody's behaviour then I will fix them but eating disorders and what I'm coming to learn are just so much more than the behaviours and actually it's it's the emotions that are deep-rooted under that which can come from you know being marginalised in society and things like that. Um, and if we only work on the behaviors, then we're not actually getting to the underlying cause and people just kind of move into other behaviors that aren't supportive for them. Uh-huh. I think it's really important what you mentioned there about intersexuality, because at the end of the day, you know, I think sexuality is massively a spectrum and we all exist in a different place. And so if somebody's coming to to you um, and their sexuality is important to them, which I think is probably important to everybody, you really have to be able to take that into consideration because that is going to affect somebody's experience. Um, and you could actually be missing quite a lot of the person if you if you don't acknowledge that. Um, and I mentioned at the start that you work with trans and non-gender conforming folks. So I wondered if you could maybe give us some insight into the unique experiences that those individuals might face, which then, you know, may or may not lead to the development of an eating disorder. But those, um, I guess, yeah, unique experiences that could potentially be something that catalyzes an eating disorder. Yeah, I think, well, I would say one of the biggest ones is, you know, looking at, um, dysphoria and dysmorphia as like interweaving, but also distinct things. Um, so dysmorphia occurs overwhelmingly in eating disorders, um, which is, you know, how someone's, how someone's view of their own body might be, um, distorted, right? Like that's a pretty like classic definition, I would say. Um, whereas gender dysphoria has to do with, you know, how your, like felt experience of your body um, and your visual experience, like maybe how you see yourself, but then also literally how you f- like feel yourself um, does not align with your gender identity. Um, and so oftentimes when we're looking at dysphoria, you know, that is a lot of where folks are making, you know, it's again, it's a range, it's not universal. I think there's also a lot of assumption that dysphoria is this thing that everyone who is trans or gender nonconforming experiences. I don't think that's true. And I think it's not always in the ways that you expect. Um, but a lot of times, if you see that dysphoria, like what is used to address that dysphoria is runs the gamut between your clothing, right? Or things like binders, um, your hair, your, um, you know, so, so kind of these like, external presentations and then we can go layers deeper we can go into you know surgical aspects right so top surgery um hormonal aspects so there's like a huge array of ways that people would 
um, decide what is right for them as far as if they have an experience of dysphoria and what that experience might be. Um, I can use myself as an example. So I, I don't experience dysphoria with my chest, but I do with my menstrual cycle. So I have an IUD, which is like this very upcoming, <laughs> all of a sudden people are like, Ooh, there's another use for an IUD. Wow. Um, and they didn't realize that big people have been doing this for years. So they use an IUD with the hope that it'll decrease or stop their periods. Um, so like I, you know, without using anybody else, right. Cause I can only speak for myself. Like that's one thing that I have done. Um, that really helps me. So I think when you're looking at, um, eating disorders, right. Um, you're looking at a really important, um, it's, I guess, again, similar to like layering and context, like we're looking at another important context. So, you know, that the eating disorder might have an effect on the size of your chest, let's say, or it might stop your menstrual cycle, or it might prevent certain secondary sex characteristics, right? If you're, if you're in like a, a more malnourished state. So similarly, it might be helpful or feel protective to, um, sort of, uh, to kind of shape your body in a way that feels, um, amorphous, right? So some people have talked about that. Um, so I think that's, that's an important thing to kind of hold when you're thinking about how, how someone is in relationship basically with, with their eating disorder and, and, and the behaviors, right. That come from it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that totally makes sense. Doesn't it? If you're, you know, struggling <clears throat> to be in a body that you're existing in and you found this thing to manipulate it and change it in a way that maybe you want it to look or is deemed more acceptable by society. I feel like that seems very natural to want to do that. And I think that's something I'm coming to realise recently is that whilst eating disorders are absolutely awful and horrific and, yeah, just the shittest place to be, they're often... A very they're very much a protective factor and we lean in them when we feel like there's nothing else um and it, and it seems like the best idea at the time um and especially here to manipulate your body and you know suppress emotion that can um, imagine this can be quite a difficult thing to go through then a confusing thing as well and if you've got eating disorder it, it suppresses that um when you're working with clients, like how do you start to unpack maybe what's going on with them, why they're leaning into that eating disorder? Yeah. And, and to be clear, I think that happens, what you're describing happens in dysmorphia too, right? Like when we mm -hmm. talk about diet culture and the ways that people feel like their body has to look a certain way. Um, I think, you know, I think there's this added layer, this kind of like added layer of depth, right? Because it can be, um, if you don't have access to um, the the things that you need, right, from like a hormone perspective or a surgery perspective or, a, you know, I can even just be safe in my environment to dress differently perspective, then this becomes kind of your only your only outlet. So there's a there's a certain level of like depth and urgency that I think dysphoria, you know, because we're really talking about like a very central part of who someone is and how they how they want to be seen and how they see themselves in the world. Um, and then you're also talking about like safety, right? Like I don't, I'm, I'm somewhat aware of what's going on in the UK, but certainly in the U S right. This is like a very, very, very contentious conversation. Um, mm -hmm. and people are 
killed for being trans, right? Like, um, and so I think that's a big part of it too, is like, am I safe? Am I safe? Can I be safe? So I think when I work with clients, um, oftentimes, you know, I think I, I, I ground it in really seeing that, how hard that is. Um, and I think also looking at, so oftentimes these are folks who have made a realization about their identity. They are coming to me either pre post some, some degree of transition, or I have had some folks that through recovery, they've realized, oh, this was a lot of what my eating disorder was about. Um, and then have kind of come out as a result of that. That's includes me. I'm one of those people who's like, oh, <laughs> this is why. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, and so I've had that happen. And so I think then we're really talking about like, number one, just understanding that, like just understanding that and, and being able to see that clearly. Um, and then I think, you know, depending on the person, then we're sort of talking about like, what are, what, what gets lost when, when you're in, maybe when you're deep in the eating disorder, what ways do you feel a distance from yourself? And is it possible for us to find other ways for you to feel um, closest to yourself? So again, depending on what that person is working with, and we might be talking about physical presentation, we might be talking about introduction of hormones, we might be talking about IUDs, we might be talking about, um, about physical presentation, I mean like hair and makeup and clothing and all of that. Um, and then also sometimes, you know, it's counseling someone through being medically stable enough to get a surgery, right? And that can be very powerful if, you know, um, if they are in a state and, you know, on an insurance plan in the U.S. that actually enables that, which is, again, like a huge, like, oh, my gosh, just to get there. But I have had some folks where that becomes a huge motivator is that if we can get you medically stable enough to be able to do this surgery, and that's like things like heart rate, right? Again, I'm not really working in weight, although unfortunately it does come up in the surgical setting. Um, so sometimes having to advocate with like a doctor. Um, so that's sometimes something I have to do. So we're trying, basically trying to find like other ways. Um, or the other thing I would say is like, or you, you practice harm reduction. You look at like, you know, this feels really intractable and I can't get what I need. Um, so how can we, how can we practice harm reduction so that you are able to be a little bit physically safer um, and feel, um, yeah, feel physically safer and also maybe start to work on the relationship to the body so that it feels a little bit more um, caring. I don't know, I guess. Yeah, and I can imagine that that whole safety element of things, um, you know, it's like unimaginable to think about laws being, you know, making you feel unsafe and depending on what state you're in. Um, but, you know, your body is your own. And if you can make that feel safe, then, you know, that's that's obviously what you're going to try and do. And an Ethan sort of might seem like the answer to that. Often I think it's it's not. It makes it feel very unsafe. But I can imagine that it it 
may feel like it. Um, and at the start, we mentioned about different things um, that, you know, um, trans and gen- non-gender conforming folks might go through, um, thinking about like top surgery and stuff. But I just wanted to come on to a little bit about hormonal replacement therapy. Again, I don't want to make any assumptions because, um, as my partner always says, to assume is to make an ass out of you and me. Um, but I would think that kind of gender dysphoria um, is quite a common thing um, for when, you know, when people are going on hormonal replacement, that that occurs. And have you seen that with eating disorder clients in terms of, you know, maybe the experience before they go on the hormonal replacement therapy, but then equally you know, going through hormonal replacement therapy, your body will change and adapt quite a lot. Um, and, you know, like anything, we may have an idea in our head of how we want our body to look, but it, you know, our body, we can't control it. So um, even though your body may start to look like the gender that you aspire to be more, it might still not be how you want it. And I can imagine those changes will be quite difficult to navigate. Um, so have you seen sort of maybe before and after clients... Um, struggling with eating disorders as a result um yeah as are you are you asking like when someone is on hormone replacement therapy is that a challenge or getting ready to go on it or wanting to be on it I guess or both all of <laughs> oh yeah yeah all of them. let's go for all <laughs> yeah I mean I think um yeah absolutely I mean going on or starting HRT yeah, your body changes a lot, right? It's like second puberty. So um, depending on the dosage, to be clear, there are some like very light doses. Um, and so, yes, absolutely. So there is an added layer. Um, and I think, you know, oftentimes there is a certain amount of um, most folks who are who are going on hormone replacement therapy are happy to be on it. So that's a nice thing. And I think it's also nice to to kind of work with someone and help them realize that that is what they want and that would be helpful to them. Um, so yeah, I think on, on either side, there's, there's challenges for sure, but they, yeah, they're certainly different, uh, depending on which are we pre or post and in process. Yeah. A little bit different. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I guess just going back to my point before about kind of, you know, you can't control where the weight is, distributed and things like that which must be quite challenging so do you think obviously not to be pessimistic about this but do you think that kind of the hormonal replacement therapy could in actual fact prolong the eating disorder because people are then still dissatisfied with their body I mean from my perspective I'm seeing it so it's going to be a lot more for somebody than just what their body looks like it's about being in it is obviously about being in a certain body but also um, the perception of other people and you know feeling comfortable in your body and all of that but I'm just wondering if if that is maybe it's further rooted than just the eating disorder I mean is further rooted yeah I think that's that's definitely true um and I think you know it's right I actually was having a, a conversation with a with a non-binary client of mine who's planning to get top surgery um and yeah, we had this exact conversation of like recognizing that even after the top surgery is like, it's not going to be like, ah, <laughs> it's great. No problem. Uh-huh. <laughs> no notes. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there's still going to be, and this is again, we're like dysphoria and dysmorphia interweave, right? So there's still going to be the influence of diet culture around like, mm. you know, um, 
However, our diet culture is shaped um, about like what people should look like or that, you know, the thin ideal or any of those types of things. Um, and especially, de again, depending on the person, if they're um, interested in passing, right, which, again, not by any means a universal experience, um, but that can be something too, right? So like now I'm on hormones and I'm on feminizing hormones, let's say, and I'm also now reckoning with like, what is it that I think like a, you know, a woman quote unquote should look like. Um, and then you get sideswiped by the diet culture. <laughs> and so, yes, absolutely. You're navigating, you're navigating both. Um, and I think, you know, and then a lot of it can become sort of um, exploring that, I would say, like ex exploring that and being like, oh, wow, how interesting that now this is now this is showing up um, and trying to reorient to like, well, what makes me feel like me? Um, and also like, how do I look at the reality of people that I'm around and are in my community who have all different body shapes, sizes, gender presentations, like who are extraordinarily diverse, um, which I think can be also helpful too. Um, and also just like in alignment with a lot of times, you know, we'll use sort of like someone's values around who they are and how they want to be in the world as a motivator. Um, yeah. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. Kind of that's, that's, I guess like the, that's a perfect example of like the interweaving. <laughs> it's really not one or the other. <laughs> yeah. And I think again, this just demonstrates the importance of seeing an individual as a whole rather than just like, Oh, you know, you're trans, therefore that must have been the cause of your eating disorder. I think often we can be so quick to be like, this experience happened to you, therefore this is why you got an eating disorder. Um, and obviously things um, like top surgery or hormonal replacement therapy, I'm sure, you know, being existing in a body that feels um, more like home or more what you expect of your body will have a massive um, impact. But then, like you said, it's not just going to be a quick fix. Tomorrow you're sorted and the eating disorder's gone. So I think it's really important, like you say, that you do with your clients to think about what the role of the eating disorder is having and to actually, you know, say that openly, like even when things have changed, you know, will you still lean into the eating disorder and developing those coping mechanisms outside of the eating disorder to be able to, you know, have coping mechanisms that are more supportive to you because, you know, like we said, simply having the surgery or the therapy, there's still going to be issues in life. There always is. So it's, and that's with everybody, you know, who might be struggling with depression or you might have recently just gone through something. So you lean into the eating disorder, but you can't just solve what you've just gone through because then in a few years time, you might lean into the eating disorder again. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, and maybe this, hopefully this is changing or will change is like, you know, I think also what we're, what we're contending with, with understanding that core is like, we're looking at, you know, almost again, mostly often, <laughs> uh, younger parts of ourselves. Right. So, mm -hmm. which is universe, which is like a, you know, extremely common experience. Right. Um, but then when you're thinking about, yeah, kind of like that deeper understanding and compassion, you're looking at like a younger part of yourself that on some level recognized and maybe quietly, maybe loudly that like, this is like, I'm whatever's going on with my body is like not in line with how I view myself. Right. And again, that's a huge array of, um, within like the transgender non-conforming gender queer, you know, the large gender expansive 
universe, <laughs> the GEU, um, is, yeah, and that's a really tender spot for most of us, right? Because that's a that's a really hard thing that that a lot of a lot of people can can really think back to and remember and experience. Um, so also like really honoring the younger parts of ourselves mm-hmm. that felt um, like really different and really scared. How would you work on that with the client? Would you just focus on the here and now, or would you go back in time? How does that work? Both, absolutely both. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, yeah, I think we talk, um, we talk about the younger parts of ourselves for sure. Um, I do often like speak in parts or, you know, work in kind of these ideas of parts of ourselves just because that was the, the main modality. It's called internal family systems. Um, Mm -hmm. that was the main modality of the treatment center where I was trained. It's not the only thing I do, but it kind of informs how I think about it. It also just like makes, I like it. (laughs) <laughs> so I, I use it because it just I, I makes sense to me, um, and it's not you know it doesn't necessarily fit for everybody. But um, even just the most basic concept of recognizing that we're not just all one thing. There's just lots of parts of ourselves that exist simultaneously, um, which is why you're able to like have an argument with yourself in your head. Like that is what that is. That's parts of yourself. Um, so yeah, so just like kind of being able to look at and understand the younger parts of ourselves. And seeing how those shape what we're doing in the here and now. Um, so really like a lot of insight work. Um, I think that's definitely something that I use. And because I work in the, you know, I'm the dietitian, um, I, I work it on the, on the aspect of food, right? So we would be using like what's going on with food or what's coming up around food or meals. Um, as a way in, as a way in to see that, um, and to also sort of experiment a bit with like, what is, what's helpful here? What, what, what matters here? Um, and what feels differently in the body if the food changes? Um, so yeah, those are some ways that I start to kind of work with someone on that. Yeah, that sounds really good. Um, sorry if this is a personal question, but I'm really intrigued to ask, um, you said at the start that you're in your own recovery. So how does you being in your own recovery, how does that feel to be a dietitian supporting other people in their recovery? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, I think it's, um, it's really interesting. Everyone, you know, I, so, so number one, like, I think it's all, it's important that I have my own, I'm taking care of my own mental health. Right. Mm -hmm. So like I have a somatic therapist that I see, I do supervision, which is, you know, about talking through it's, it's somewhat therapeutic, (laughs) but it's also (laughs) about like making sure that someone, because I'm a private, I I practice on my own, I have my own business, then like, I need someone else. And ideally, sometimes a couple of people, depending on the situation, I might ask for, I might get consultation on a particular client, especially if that client, you know, um, like I've done consultation, yeah, around all different identities. Um, where I'm working with a practitioner who might, uh, hold that identity to get supervision on it. And then I also just get supervision every month or so. Um, so that's a big part of it. Um, because that takes, that helps me manage my own mental health. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, I, yeah, it was really, uh, I didn't know it was going to (laughs) happen. And I think oftentimes if you have your own history of disordered eating or eating disorder and you, you enter into this work, it's hard to say until you know, uh, until you 
until you go in there. Um, you can go in with really, I mean, it's always recommended that you go in with, with recovery. Um, and then sometimes folks come in with their recovery and they're like, whoa, uh oh, <laughs> no, 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 this is not right for me, which great, like honor that. Yes. Um, and I think for me, um, I actually find it, um, tremendously, I would say motivating, um, because it helps me to feel, um, like I feel like I need to be, uh, practicing what I am offering. So it keeps me really accountable. Um, (laughs) and you know, and it just helps me to remember like why I do this, like why it matters to me and like how important it is that like my, you know, my own recovery is dialed in so that I can be able to, to be present for my clients. Um, so that's something that like I noticed is like, you know, when I was, when I was way more in my disordered eating, like I wasn't really present a lot and I didn't really have the capacity to sort of connect because I couldn't really feel things. Um, and so now, you know, on the one hand, like I feel more things, which is hard as many people <laughs> listening to this who might have a history of me sort of understand. <laughs> um, and also it helps me really connect with my clients and be present with them. Um, so I find it. Yeah. But again, I don't think that's, I think that's just what I have found. Um, I do not by any means think that that's the, uh, I think that it's really like, crap shoot and you have to just honor whatever happens um yeah you know but that's for me yeah it's really lovely to hear you speak about working in eating disorders and you know finding it so useful for yourself but also I think there's so much to be said for people that do have their own experience and then they go to work in eating disorders um I think it really allows people to empathize and just kind of get it on another level um But also, I think something that's, you know, that you said that's really important as well is that, you know, embracing if it doesn't work, um, because it it didn't work for me. And actually, on that reflection, I realized that I was trying so hard to continue with my eating disorder. And it was such a big part of my identity that it felt like the only thing left that I could do was work in it. Um, And so when that didn't work out for me, I felt like a failure. And actually, it's made me realize, you know, there's still so much more of my eating disorder that I need to unpick, because... I'm not ready to not have my identity around eating disorders. And some may say that doing this podcast involves that, but I do actually absolutely adore living, um, doing this podcast and it, it really does help me. It's like three, three free therapy. Um, but yeah, it's really nice to hear that you kind of find it so rewarding for yourself, but also that it has an element of helping you too, because I think it's really important that we help ourselves as well as the people that we're working with hundred percent, a hundred percent. Yeah. I think, I think ultimately it's the idea of just, you know, um, what, what helps to give your life meaning, like mm-hmm. what, what helps you feel as if there is, yeah, that you're connected to others and that there's like a, something that you feel good. And that doesn't, your job does not have to be the thing that gives your life meaning also. Exactly. But I think that's a big part of recovery is I just see people, um, starting to become more connected to others, um, finding a job or hobbies that feel really meaningful to them that help them tap into like their passion and their joy. Um, yeah. So ultimately, yeah. And exactly. And I think you made it make a good point that sometimes working in disorder can kind of tie you to it. Um, 
And that's something that I have heard as like a, as like a critique of what I do is like, well, aren't you just still like tied to it? And I'm like, well, I don't know, man, like different strokes, I guess. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't feel that way, but, um, yeah. but I also think that, yeah, I think that is, I think some people really just want to like leave the eating disorder, like not be engaging with that, um, engaging with eating disorder recovery on the magnitude of their career. And I think that is a extremely valid choice. Like, don't do that if it's not good for you, <laughs> please. Yeah. Ooh, I got thoughts. Um, I mean, I, so again, obviously this is partially going to be rooted in like the only healthcare system I know, which is the U S healthcare system. Um, yeah, I think that's such a good point. Um, and I suppose just to finish us off, you obviously have that like dual experience of understanding, you know, um, the gender side of things, the sexuality side of things, but then also the eating disorder side of things. So I think in, you know, the healthcare system, you know, if you go privately, then I'm sure you can go and work with individuals like yourself that have that dual experience. But often, you know, you are just kind of given a clinician when you go into the normal healthcare system. So how do you think that people working in the healthcare system can be, um, you know, can individualise, you know, support so that it's appropriate for the person rather than just kind of blanket, this is how treatment works, uh, regardless of your unique experiences? I mean, overwhelmingly. So the first thing that just comes to my head, and this is not just queer, transgender, non-conforming folks, but like BIPOC folks, many folks is like money, mm -hmm. expense, outrageously yeah. expensive to access care um, and very challenging to navigate insurance if a treatment center even does take insurance. Um, and so I think that is something of just like, oh my gosh, like it's so, so inaccessible. Um, so I think we need a lot more, um, we need a lot more people at the treatment centers who do maybe share some of these identities. Um, cause oftentimes there's none. Um, and I think that's also on like the leadership of a treatment center to, really think about their hiring practices and their culture, like the, the, the corporate culture, because it's also not good enough to just hire one person. And then that person leaves because they feel really stigmatized mm. and alienated. Um, you know, whether we're talking like a BIPOC person or a trans person or gender non-conforming person. So I think there's that aspect, um, where like, what are you really doing to like bake into your culture? Um, more intentional like hiring and making sure that those people feel um like heard and that if they are coming and saying like hey like, i would really suggest we adjust this part of our treatment model like being able to like receive that so um you know i mean i think when we think about a treatment center anything that um makes money um you're talking about power Right. And you're talking about like treatment centers are necessarily hierarchical. Um, they tend to have a really like carceral view of what, and that's it for everybody. Right. Um, <clears throat> and having worked in, I uh, was not corporate in the sense that it was just, it was a, it was for profit, of course, um, as most of them are, but it was much smaller because when I was there, it has since been sold to a corporate, um, 
okay. uh, chain. But at the time, it was just like a, a husband and wife who were running it. So my experience is a little, which is like very rare. There's like very few of those places. Um, so I've never worked inside of it. Um, so I think, to be clear, I think there are practitioners inside of these like larger treatment centers who are really advocating, who are like really, really trying. And I am so have tremendous respect for them. And I think it also falls on the folks who are in charge, right? Who are like the, you know, the top of this hierarchy to really think about like, to really think about power, to think about power on the lines of like the people in charge are overwhelmingly white and they're overwhelmingly straight and they're overwhelmingly cisgender. Um, and so if we start there, how do we actually like shape our entire treatment model from the perspective of like, we don't know everything and like, you know, relapse rate outside of a treatment center is really high. And so I think that's like a worthwhile thing to look at. What is that? Why is that so high um, for everybody? And then on top of that, you know, how can we make spaces that feel, um, that feel safe and um, how can we really for the people? So how do we increase our staffing um, for people who do share these identities? And then also how can we do education with the staff who do not um, and I think not just education, but like real, um, reflection, right. Um, because I think, you know, until you, and this is for everybody, like until you sort of look at your own, are able to kind of look at yourself and your own biases and accept feedback, um, you tend to just kind of like recreate harm. Um, and so I think that's also like really challenging, you know, i thinking about, right, how do you, how do you conduct those types of like trainings um, so that it's not just like, oh, we're just like, we do one training and that's, you know, we fixed, we fixed it. Yeah, but I think by it being a long-worded answer, often when people want to make changes like this, it's very much a tick box exercise and they want to say, oh, we did this one training and now we're all clued up on it and, you know, we're so diverse and, um, you know, accommodate all these things. But actually, like you said, it needs to be something that becomes embedded in the culture. And the only way to really do that is to have somebody with that lived experience, um, you know, to champion that. Otherwise, it's you do the training, you just forget about it, and then someone comes along and you've got no way of knowing how to navigate it or support them. Um, so I think it massively does, you know, it's not a simple answer because it's not a simple thing to do. If it was, you know, maybe more people would be doing it, which is obviously quite a pessimistic view. Um, but it does need to be about embedding, embedding that into the care and support that's being received. And I think honestly, like the, what's ironic to me is like, it's, it's actually a really similar analogy, right? Where like, you can't, you can't just address the external level of the behavior. You have to get mm -hmm. to the deeper yeah. level of like, what is really happening in depth, right? And so I mm -hmm. think like treatment centers as like an organism, as a cultural organism, as a community where there's a bunch of people doing this thing, right? Um, that that's just a replication of what you're trying to do with your client or what you're trying to do with the people who are there. So if you're just papering over behavioral things and ticking boxes, as you mentioned, like you're just going to replicate that with the people that you yeah. serve. 
So until you go inward, how can you really create a space where other, where the people that you're coming in to heal can go inward? Like you, my, my argument would be you, you can't, not necessarily. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really important point in the fact that, you know, if you're expecting your clients to come in and unravel so much of them and really look deeper, then you've got to do that with yourself and you've got to look at your unconscious bias because if you're not doing that, you can't expect somebody else to do that. Um, But yeah, thank you so much, H, for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to have this conversation with you. Um, Where can people go to find out more about you and the work that you do? Yeah. Um, so, and I know you, when you sent me, I have like one minute and I know you asked me about the Pando. I saw that when you yeah, sent me yeah. some questions. And I, well, is it okay if I just say what the Pando Absolutely. Is? Yeah. Okay, okay. All the time. Um, yeah. So the Pando, um, shout out to one of my very good friends from the farm, Andrew, for introducing me to the term. Um, uh, so uh, the Aspen trees, um, which are really common in the Western United States, Uh, are actually not like single trees. So they are what's called clonal clonal colonies. And so they actually are this like network underground that they're all connected. So they're essentially the Mm -hmm. same organism. And I got really into like macro, like giant organisms for a while. And there's like a giant moss. Like, I don't know, there's a lot of really interesting giant organisms. And so the pando is this particularly large um a clonal colony of Aspen in the like um, Utah, Colorado area. It's also mm-hmm. like several thousands of years old. Um, and so I just loved, I love the name, even though people always think it's Panda, which is also cute. <laughs> like, I don't mind. I just want them to like type the right thing to the search bar. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just love this idea that like, you know, even though we, even though the trees appear separate, right, they are interconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, they're linked together and they're also like ancient. And so I just thought that was like a very cool, you know, that's how I think about, um, people and that's how I think about food. So, um, yeah, so that's the Pando. So that's where folks can find me is Pando, Amazing. P-A-N-D-O, <laughs> cause dot com was taken. Um, so Pando wellness.org or my Instagram that I, I'm working on being better about because I'm very social media averse, but you can find me uh, at Panda Wellness and that's Amazing. where I am. <laughs> Brilliant. Amazing. And thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much, Anna. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode. So be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.